Little Johnny was out in the backyard digging a hole. Or did you send this to me? Yeah, little Johnny, the neighborhood kid, the generic boy. I like the name Johnny because it disguises the fact this could be Mac or Will, you know, doing this. Little Johnny's out in the backyard and he's digging a hole and uh, working hard on it, working hard on it. He's getting to be a pretty big hole. And the neighbor uh, says, uh, you know, what are you doing? Well, I'm I'm preparing to bury my my pet hamster. And uh, the neighbor looks at it and says, that's kind of a big hole for the hamster, isn't it? And Johnny says, well, yeah, but he's inside your cat. I liked it anyway, yes. That's right. All right, audio grabber's working. We're recording. Did that joke get recorded? Oh, outstanding. We'll have to charge extra for that. Matthew chapter 8, if you would. Matthew chapter 8. And I had actually intended to bring a second Bible up here today because we're going to do so much flipping back and forth that uh, you're going to want maybe to have a couple of Bibles handy. I see one on the front row. I'm going to steal this one. Matthew chapter 8 and Luke chapter 7. And we'll look at both uh, both scriptures. Matthew 8, verses 5 through 13, and Luke 7, verses 1 through 10. This is episode 18 in the uh, portion of the ministry title, The Galilean Ministry. This Bible doesn't have Luke. I'm not joking. It goes from Luke 2 to John 6. No, everything between page 46 and 79. (laughs) All right, well. That's right. Hope they make use of it. Well, let's go ahead and start with prayer. We haven't prayed yet, have we? That's probably an indicator. That's right. Let's give this some prayer then. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing we have to assemble together. We do ask for your hand of blessing upon our time together. As the word of God goes forth, let it go forth uh, alive and powerful. Let it uh, pierce as deep as it needs to pierce. We thank you and we praise you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We wrapped up Sermon on the Mount last week, which was chapters 5, 6, and 7. And we can go ahead and move on into chapter 8 of Matthew. Although for the moment we pass by verses 1 through 4 in order to move on to verses 5 through 13. The healing of the leper here. Matthew places it um, immediately after coming off the mountain and prior to going into Capernaum. There is a reason actually for moving this up, and we've already dealt with this. This was episode 8, by the way, that we dealt with already. And given where it's placed in Mark and Luke, it was reasonable to take that chronology rather than Matthew's chronology. So for the moment, let's pass over 1 through 4. And let's deal with verses 5 and following. I do want to say, though, that this uh, episode is perhaps the most difficult one to harmonize. Of all the episodes we've been looking at, and remember, this is a Life of Christ series, and what we're attempting to do is provide a harmony of the, uh, of really all four gospel accounts, the trickiest 
uh, of that is the, is the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because those three Gospels are largely interchangeable. They cover roughly the same episodes. They cover much of the same material. They are really parallel Gospel accounts. John, on the other hand, the fourth Gospel was written uh, years after the synoptic Gospels were written, and the subject matter is largely independent. And uh, just a glance at the, at the Harmony uh, handout that we give out will... We'll, uh, pretty well testified to that, that when you look at those columns, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John columns, when uh, an episode appears in John, usually there's three blank columns to the left. In other words, John is recording something that was not previously given in one of the synoptic gospels. But our goal is to harmonize. In other words, if we read an account in Matthew, we read an account in Mark, and we read an account in Luke, and there are differences, minor differences, or possibly even major differences, such as this one. I think when you look at this one, you read it, and at face value, the differences appear to be major. And some believers get scared because the differences appear to be um, contradictory, in which case then a believer who uh, believes that all Scripture is God-breathed, a believer that holds to the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, would look at two contradictory passages, and logic says that, Mutually exclusive truths cannot both be true, in which case believers can struggle with their faith or wonder how can both of these be true. If one contradicts, then one must be right, one must be wrong. So we'll deal with that here this morning. They are not as contradictory as it first appears, and there's no reason to be afraid of the differences in this text any more than any other synoptic problems that uh, that we do examine. So let's read it. Let's start with Matthew 8. Verse 5 says, when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Uh, But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly, truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you, verse 11, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. That's the Matthew record. Verses 5 through 13. Let's deal now with the Luke record. So just hold your finger there. I'm going to wear your finger out this morning because we are going to do a lot of hold your fingers and bounce back and forth. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Luke 7, 1 through 10. I might even cheat if I do that. That could work. Maybe not. Luke 7, 1 through 10. When he had completed all of the, his discourse, um, and that's the Sermon on the Mount parallel that's found in Luke 6. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion's slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. 
When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him. For he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and followed and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. All right, that's verses 1 through 10. And then the widow's uh, son Nain follows in verse 11. And that's our very next episode that we'll deal with, episode 19. Uh, an episode that's only uh, recorded in the Gospel of Luke. All right, but for this morning, though, we want to deal with this centurion servant. So we read the Matthew account, and we read the uh, the Luke account. There is no Mark account, by the way, which is interesting, because uh, one of the projects you do in the in the synoptic uh, problem or in the synoptic gospels in, in trying to balance all three of them is, is determine, all right, what episodes are common to all three? What episodes are missing in one? So you make a list of all the ones Mark leaves out, all the ones Matthew leaves out, all the one, ones that Luke leaves out. So you have a listing of those. And then you uh, want to have a listing of the ones that are only found in a single gospel, like the one we're going to do next with the, the widow's son at Nain, that's only found in the Gospel of Luke, not counted by Matthew, not counted by Mark. Anyway, these are the kind of projects you do when you do a synoptic Gospel harmony. And as I say, when you, throwing in that fourth Gospel doesn't really add much to your work because uh, John is so largely independent anyway when it comes to it. It is striking to note what events are covered by all four Gospels? There aren't that many. There's, there's the, the baptism of the River Jordan. There's the feeding of the 5,000. There's the, uh, the cross. And that's pretty much it. There's not much that's recorded by all four Gospels. All right? Now, what do you think? What, uh, did you notice a difference between Matthew and Luke? What, uh, what did you observe there as you read? You're all careful Bible students. I'm sure you spotted it and it didn't take long. Linty, did you... Okay, almost. Yeah, almost. You got the Matthew one right. In the Matthew account, the centurion himself walks out there. The centurion himself goes to where Jesus is and speaks face to face with Jesus. Okay. And in the Luke account, does the centurion go himself? Yeah. Not a slave. No, the slave is sick. The slave is at the point of death. But he sends Jewish elders, and then he follows that up with friends. Okay. We're going to outline all of this. Uh, but at first glance, you look at this and say, well, that's contradictory, right? Matthew says he goes himself, and Luke says he sends messengers. So which is it? And, and, and if you're caught in this either-or mentality, then you have to assume that either Matthew's wrong or Luke's wrong, in which case the Bible's not reliable, right? Whichever way you take it. If, if Matthew is right, then Luke's wrong, in which case 
the Bible's not reliable. Or if Luke's right, then Matthew's wrong, in which case the Bible's not reliable. And so a skeptic, a, a natural built-in God-hater anyway, would be able to use that as ammunition and say, see, the Bible's not reliable. And they point to all these contradictions. I recommend, by the way, Gleason Archer has a tremendous book called uh, Answering uh, All the Difficulties in the Bible or Answering Bible Difficulties, something like that. But the word Bible Difficulties is uh, in the title. It's a good book. Um, I don't agree with his solution to this uh, to this issue, though, and we'll talk about that. Um, and then there's other resources like that, but Gleason Archer is, is one that I recommend for, for dealing with text questions like that. Uh, just not in this episode. I think uh, I think Zane Hodges actually has the much better solution to this than uh, than Gleason Archer did. All right, as I gave you under point one now. Um, first of all, the episode itself is pretty simple. Okay, uh, there's a sick kid. Uh, the slave is actually a boy. He's a young slave, born into slavery, and and he's not that old. We'll see the terminology here. Uh, but there's a sick boy. Uh, he's gonna die. And the centurion needs uh, goes to Jesus to have him healed, and the centurion understands that Jesus doesn't have to come. Okay, the centurion understands that. Jesus, uh, the centurion has faith. Jesus does the miracle, and it's done at a distance. Okay, so it's it's a fairly simple episode, and it's not that uh, far removed from one that we already dealt with in John chapter four. If you recall, after. He left the uh, the woman at the well and had the ministry with the Samaritans. Um, you still have fingers in two different places? <laughs> All right. Just sneak a peek at John 4. I don't know how you'll do that with your fingers. But sneak a peek at John 4 and remind yourself here. There, here, though, uh, again, the geography might confuse us because the geography is Capernaum. Uh, it is a royal official, however. It is not a, a centurion that uh, has a person he's concerned about. And in this case, it's not a slave, but it is a son, the son of the royal official. And this is somebody, obviously, in the household of Herod. We dealt with some of the history on that. Uh, but Herod had, uh, the Tetrarch had a headquarters here at Capernaum. It is likely, though, that the centurion worked for that, uh, for Herod. That, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about how the uh, Roman armies were organized when we deal with the centurion here this morning. But he uh, he comes to uh, to Jesus and he begs him to come down, come down, come down in verse 49. He does not have faith that Jesus can do the miracle from a distance. He needs Jesus to come to Capernaum and heal the boy there. And uh, Jesus tells him, go your way, your son lives. It was at that time in verse 50 that the man believes and goes off. So um, he doesn't have the faith ahead of time or the understanding ahead of time that Jesus can perform the, the miracle at whatever distance. It doesn't matter. Okay. So there's uh, some people try to, to lump this one in and, and they would throw John 4 into the mix with Matthew 8 and with Luke 7 and say all three of those Gospels are recording the same event. Okay, And generally when they do that, they're approaching it from the standpoint that God didn't write the Bible to begin with and that these were just oral traditions that kind of got handed down. And when they got recorded, there were there were these differences, right? Because Matthew and Luke call him a centurion. John calls him a royal official. Uh, you know, Matthew and Luke call him a slave, but John calls him a son and and blah, blah, blah. And they will use the the discrepancies or their perceived discrepancies to again cast doubt upon the inspiration of scripture. Now, we view John 4 as a separate event totally. 
It, uh, in the context of the uh, following the woman at the well and the first arrival in Capernaum, that's the best setting for it. This is a separate event. So we don't confuse the two. The John 4 is something else totally, and because we've already taught it, we don't have to review it, but there are similarities. Capernaum is one of them. The, the fact that there's a sick person in Capernaum. Okay? But that shouldn't be enough to cause us to fall into confusion there. Let's just stick this morning. You can release your finger from John 4. Let's just stick this morning with Matthew 8 and Luke 7. And I'll give you under point one that this synoptic episode is perhaps the most difficult one to harmonize. Uh, under this, uh, point A, Matthew's account describes the centurion appearing personally. Matthew's account describes the centurion and we don't know his name. The Bible doesn't give us his name. And actually, I scoured uh, church history to see if maybe there were some old, long-standing Catholic traditions or anything giving us this guy's name, uh, like there are concerning the the other centurion, the one that poked the spear in the side of Christ. You know, there's tons of legends, apocryphal legends and stories about him and uh, his uh, supposed name and all the rest. Uh, but I couldn't even find a, a traditional name or a legend about this guy. He was just the Capernaum synagogue builder is all he's known as. Um, but Matthew's account describes the centurion appearing personally. That's Matthew 8, 5. Luke's account describes the centurion sending representatives and not appearing personally. Luke 7, verse 3 and verse 6. In verse 3, he's sending the Jewish elders. And in verse 6, he's sending friends. Now, because of this, some view that as an either or, and they view that as a discrepancy. And if you limit the understanding to an either or, then it is a discrepancy. But we have tried in all of our gospel uh, harmonizations. Um, <laughs> I had a typo yesterday. Sharon saw it in my office. I misspelled harmonize, and I put an O in there, so it was hormonize. And I'm not sure how you harmonize anything and how hormones come into it anyway, but and if even hormonize is a word, I don't know. Is there a verb form for hormones? Anyway, we're trying to harmonize the uh, accounts. If we're stuck in either or thinking, then we're limited. We want to start to open the horizon to a both and thinking. We leave either or and we embrace both and. In other words, both Matthew and Luke are recording true circumstances, all right, and that they are not necessarily mutually exclusive. In other words, both are true. And I'll outline that for you when I harmonize it under point two. Uh, Matthew chooses not to record the messengers that were sent ahead of the centurion, and Luke chooses to record the messengers that were sent and doesn't record the follow-up visit or the the uh, personal journey of the centurion himself after he sent the messengers. So they don't contradict and neither one excludes the other. You'll see that under point two. This study would utilize a great harmonization presented by Zane Hodges in October 1964. Zane Hodges, anybody know that name? I think he's spoken here in times past, back in the 70s, I think, uh, uh, Bill Dorman got him down here to speak on an occasion. He was a uh, Dallas professor back in the 60s, uh, assistant professor of, of uh, department head of New Testament exegesis, uh, written a number of articles. You may have them in uh, your personal library. 
But Zane Hodges wrote an article in Bibsack, that's the Theological Journal of Dallas Theological Seminary, and uh, I listed the reference there if you want to go look it up, volume 121, issue number 484. But he writes precisely, and if you have the journals available in your Libronic software, then you'll have this also to consult. An article titled, The Centurion's Faith in Matthew and Luke. What do you know? And he takes 12 pages to outline not only the the exegesis of the text, but the parallels between them, and also to chart some of the um, contradictions that the uh, skeptics have there. And uh, he also addresses the mythological cue document that some people try to use as a basis for their harmonization. Anyway, the article is there. Um, I haven't printed any copies of it. But if you are interested, I can certainly provide that for you. I think the class this morning, though, will give you the essence of that article. And without having to read the, without having to read the, the journal itself, I think you'll get, the, you'll get the gist of it. Let me give it to you under point two then. Um, which is, by the way, another plug <laughs> for the, uh, the electronic version of journals, for example. Electronic version of texts. Um, if, if I was to go into a room like the library here and just look at a wall full of Bibsack journals, how long would it have taken me to find an article written in October of 1964? You know, right, pulling them off the shelf, looking through, seeing, you know, is there anything in this journal that talks about Matthew or Luke or so, so forth? Um, occasionally, seminaries have tried to produce indexes by decade to let you know at least if there's a, a Bible passage that's dealt with, but those indexes are not very uh, thorough or not very exhaustive. Having it electronically allows you to do a search like that by scripture reference and title and so forth, and it doesn't take long, and the, the computer does all the hard work for you. So you just put in words like centurion, Capernaum, synagogue. Uh, you put in the scripture references, Matthew 8 and Luke 7, and you say, go find it, and it finds it, and it finds an article like that, and and uh, becomes real helpful. All right, here's the uh, the basic harmonization. First of all, I'll just simply outline it for you. One, two, three, four. The slave boy falls sick. Makes sense. The centurion sends Jewish elders, which he does in Luke 7, verses 3 through 5. The centurion sends friends to Jesus. Now, you've got to stop and ask yourself there. When you read Luke 7, 3 through 5, and then you look at verse 6, you wonder, well, why is he sending these guys? Why did he send the, the elders in the first place? So the boy falls sick. The centurion sends Jewish elders. The centurion sends friends. And then finally, the centurion comes himself. That's the, that's the sequence. And it's a natural sequence. There's nothing illogical about it. There's nothing um, extraordinary about it. And it's one that harmonizes the accounts between Matthew and Luke. It helps to resolve the tension or the uh, apparent discrepancy between the two records. It's a natural reading. I'm going to focus mainly on Luke 7 here for the moment. Um, and we'll get more details on this when we go through verse by verse and actually spell some of this out. But first of all, verse 3, he heard about Jesus. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders. Now he heard, what did he hear? Well, he heard that he'd 
came off the mountain. He heard that that Sermon on the Mount was over. He heard that, you know, he was coming back to Capernaum, whatever he heard. He knew enough about Jesus and perhaps previous miracles. Maybe that nobleman's son that was healed from a distance. Okay? If, since that miracle had been done in Jerusalem, that's a possibility. Um, in any event, he knows that miracles are done. He knows that Jesus has power from heaven. And he's not concerned about the distance because of his own perspective in the military. We'll demonstrate that as well. So, but he sends these elders. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders. All right. Now, these guys, and we'll talk about them, I guess, here as well. But these guys are the, uh, it doesn't call them rabbis, but they are older believers. They are uh, respected members of their clans, of their uh, respective tribes of their communities and so forth. They have a tremendous amount of esteem in the area there. They would be leading members of the synagogue in Capernaum. If we recognize that when they praise the centurion for building their synagogue in, uh, in verse 6. And so he's sending these guys. Now, why doesn't he come himself? Why does he send them? In verse 6, he's sending friends. Why didn't he send the friends first? Uh, why did he send the elders first? What was he trying to achieve there? Okay, And if he thought he could achieve it with them, why does he follow it up with the friends? Okay. Now, we, don't, we can't answer this with a certainty because we don't have a verse in here that says he sent the elders because. He sent the elders because he thought that Jesus would respect them and follow them. It doesn't say that. We can assume that. It's natural. But then it doesn't say, why did he send the friends? Did he, was he growing doubtful that the elders would, uh, that Jesus would respect those elders? Was he having second thoughts? Did he think that maybe the friends would be more effective? We're not told. Okay, but there's enough of a question that's present here to make it make it clear that if he was absolutely confident in in these uh, elders bringing Jesus back, that he wouldn't have sent the friends. Right. So if nothing else, it's not we're not really in the realm of speculation to assume that the uh, that the centurion felt that the uh, the elders weren't sufficient, say, or he wouldn't have sent the friends. In which case, it's quite natural to, again, we're not in the realm of speculation, but it's natural to say, well, if the, uh, if the elders couldn't do it, and if the friends couldn't do it, might he not still be doubtful? Might he not still be uh, thinking, you know what, I better go talk to him myself? See? And I think the, the indication that he'd sent these, these two groups, the Jewish elders and then the friends and then himself, is a natural progression. We'll give you more detail on this here in a moment, but this is just simply the basic outline to harmonize the two Gospels. And our point B, Matthew's Gospel purpose. Keep in mind, Matthew's Gospel purpose. Do you remember when we first introduced this, we talked about Matthew giving the Gospel of the King, for example, with all the emphasis on the Kingdom of Heaven and all the emphasis on the discourses that were verbally uh, communicated and recorded? Mark records the, is the Gospel of the Servant. Luke is the gospel of uh, humanity. Okay, They had a variety of, go- of purposes in recording their gospels. Matthew's gospel purpose needed no mention of the messengers preceding the centurion. There was no need for it. 
It would not have been consistent in the, the purpose of the, of the gospel account anyway. See, and Matthew simply doesn't even bring it up. Even though, when you think about it, between Matthew and Luke, which one was there? Matthew was there. Matthew was a disciple. Matthew was one of the twelve. See, Luke got all his information from eyewitness accounts, from the, the, the history background investigations that he did and so forth. But Matthew's gospel purpose did not need to mention the messengers preceding the centurion. So far as Matthew was concerned, Christ is the king and here comes a soldier to speak to the king and to communicate the doctrinal appreciation he has for chain of command. See, and the soldier can speak to Jesus Christ on those terms. They can fellowship on those terms. We'll see that here coming up. Point, point C, Luke's gospel purpose needed no mention of the centurion's change of heart and personal appearance before Christ. Wasn't necessary for what Luke was communicating in his gospel purpose. Luke was stressing the, uh, many of the, uh, the, the personal stories, the health stories. Interestingly enough, we get a description, a medical description of uh, of the sick boy in Luke, and we get a different medical description, not really contradictory, but slightly different description in Matthew. The centurion's own words are quite vivid. And it's striking that the centurion uses that vivid terminology, and Dr. Luke didn't record that. Dr. Luke, the beloved physician, does not record the even the arrival of the centurion himself. And it's even conceivable that Luke never even knew that the centurion made the follow-up trip. See, that uh, Luke had simply interviewed the, the uh, servants or the elders or different people involved. He knew about the people that had been dispatched. Never knew that the uh, centurion himself made a personal appearance afterwards. All right. Whether Luke knew or not doesn't change the factual reality of what he wrote here in Luke chapter 7. Under point D, neither account fatally contradicts the veracity of the other. Neither account fatally contradicts the veracity of the other. Again, with that four-point outline. The boy gets sick. Centurion sends elders. Centurion sends friends. Centurion goes himself. Okay? Matthew chose not to record the messenger sent ahead of time. Luke chose not to record the the uh, follow-up visit by the centurion himself. Although, even though Luke doesn't mention that, the language that Luke does record seems to allow for it. In fact, it, uh, it fits it quite nicely. If you just glance with me here at verse um, uh, 10... See, now Jesus, uh, verse 10, when those who had been sent, it doesn't say they returned to the centurion. It says they returned to the house. Where was the centurion? Well, if, if, we're, if our harmonization is correct, the centurion was out there looking for Jesus. And, uh, you know, missed him on the way. They went back to the house. And uh, the slave is all better now. It doesn't say they return to the centurion. It says they return to the house. And they found the slave in good condition. All right. Neither one fatally contradicts the veracity of the other. Important to keep in mind. So we don't, we don't get trapped in the either-or mentality, but we embrace the both-and. Both-and. 
And by the way, if you can keep this principle, uh, it's not just gospel harmonies that'll help you. Uh, if you can keep this idea, I think so much of the so much of the uh, Calvinism questions. I mean, you can debate that for the next 55 million years, right? And our finite humanity, because we have we have sovereignty here. We've got volition, right? And if you insist on the either or and reject the other, then you have to come down on one side of it, right? But if you accept both and, God is sovereign and he gave us choices to make, it helps to ease some of the absolute tension, all right? And we've talked about this in a variety of different con uh, contexts. So it's not just gospel harmonies. I want you to keep the, the both and model in mind uh, in addition to the either or model, because uh, more often than not, it's going to be the both and model that's going to really help us to, uh, to get a handle on what we're looking at. Now, the details. We've got the basic story down. Let's start to deal with the details. The details and the Lord's response. The details and the Lord's response. Because the Lord is, is stunned. He hasn't seen this before, not in his humanity. He has not seen such a faith. And it's coming from a Gentile. It's not coming from where he would expect it to come from. Somebody that was born in a Jewish home. Someone that was raised in the Old Testament scriptures. Somebody that has uh, spent their entire lives awaiting the coming Messiah. It's coming from a Gentile. So here's the details. Now, again, we're going to do some back and forth, but I think, though, we're going to keep it in uh, Luke for the early part. And then we'll go over to Matthew for the later part. But there, there could still be some back and forth in this. I'm going to give you the details of this in some points A through G, A, B, C, D, E, F and G. But the details we get in Luke 7, 2 through 8, Matthew 8, 5 through 9. The Lord's response comes in Luke 7, 9, and Matthew 8, 10 through 13. By the way, the part that talks about uh, coming from the east and the west and reclining at the table and eating with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, that's in Matthew. That's not in Luke. Luke doesn't record that information. Matthew is the gospel of the king. Matthew presents this teaching about the, the, the uh, dining with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. And looking forward to that. What a, what a uh, wonderful reward that is promised to believers of this age to be able to have an invitation to the patriarchal feast. And uh, we'll, we'll spend some time on that as well. All right. First of all. Oh, yuck. Look what it did to... Hecaron Tarkos. All right. Probably the only one that'll be like that. All right. Hecaron, Hecaton Tarkos or Hecaton Tarkas. There's two different forms. One's masculine, one's feminine, but they seem to be used either way. Uh, in fact, when Strong went through and gave his uh, numbers to all these words, he assigned the same number, 1543, to both forms, either the masculine form or the feminine form. The os ending is a masculine ending. The ace ending is really it's a feminine appearing ending, but it is still a masculine noun. Whether it's os or ace doesn't matter. But uh, the the hec in the Greek, the hecaton here is a hundred, and then arco is to rule, so it's a ruler of one hundred. Okay. If uh, if it was a ruler of a thousand, it would be a kiliarchase, right? Because kilios is a thousand. If it was a ruler of ten, it'd be a, a decar case. 
Okay. Just put the number on front, put our case on the back, and there you have it. Commander of a hundred, or we simply render it by the Latin title centurion. In a Roman setting, it's acceptable to translate this as centurion, because that was the title of the, of the Roman commander of, of a century. Okay. There's another term that's used three times, all in the Gospel of Mark, uh, has nothing to do with our lesson today, but hecatontarches uh, is the more common term used 20 or 21 times, depending on your manuscript. Uh, there Three times there's a term called kenturion. Kenturion, and that's not even a Greek word, but it's a loan word, and they basically just took the Latin centurion, gave it Greek letters, and called it a Greek word. And uh, you can find it in some uh, Greek writings as well as the New Testament. But three times it's used in the New Testament. It's used in Mark 15 uh, with reference to the the spear, the centurion who pierced the Lord's side with a spear. Uh, the centurion who at the cross recognized with the earthquake and the darkness and everything else that this was indeed an innocent man, the son of God that they had crucified. By the way. I don't know if you noticed this or not. Have you done much reading in the Gospels and Acts? There's another centurion in Acts. Remember his name? Who's the centurion in Acts? Lives in Caesarea, got saved. Peter went to his house. Okay. Uh, anyway, you get, you get uh, six or seven centurions that are mentioned in the Gospels and in Acts, and they're all pretty positive accounts. Let's see. Um, Two that obviously become believers, and probably three, and even the ones that you don't know if they become believers or not, they're at least very positive, and they're, uh, you know, they save Paul's life, for example, keep Paul from getting stoned and transport him to Rome and things like that. It's, it's interesting the way uh, New Testament at least portrays these various centurions. Now, he had a slave, a doulos, a slave. All too often it's uh, rendered servant in our modern 20th century Bibles anyway. I think there's such a uh, fear of slavery as a concept. And maybe, uh, I don't know, a, a guilt or something to, to consider that, that our nation practiced slavery at a time. That uh, they want to shy away from the word in some kind of uh, politically correct denial, but it is a slave. It is a bond slave. It is a doulos bond slave. The fact that he's a boy called a pais, P-A-I-S, in both Luke and Matthew, uh, doesn't change the fact that he's a slave because children of slaves are born into slavery and would likewise be slaves of the master. Everything that that slave is, everything that that slave does, including babies born, belong to the slave master. And so a boy born a slave is a slave and a part of the master's house, same as the parents are a part of the master's house. It was called a doulos, number 1400, a slave. Israel practiced slavery in the ancient world. The Romans practiced slavery. In fact, Rome couldn't have been built and become an empire the way it did without the slaves in the Roman world. But the term doulos is found in Luke 7, verse 2, verse 3, and verse 10. The term boy or pice is used in uh, Luke 7, 7, also three times in Matthew 8, verse 6, verse 8, and verse 13. A lot of times, pice itself means slave if the context is appropriate for that, as clearly this context is. Remarkably enough, 
um, this slave was precious, highly regarded or precious. And that is a clue as far as the character of the centurion is concerned and also as far as his motivation to see this boy not die. All right. And uh, the adjective for precious is entimos, E-N-T-I-M-O-S, entimos, 1784. And in the uses of entimos that we have in the New Testament, there's not that many. Luke 7, 2 here, it says a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. Now, that's unusual because slaves were so cheap in the Roman Empire. Slaves were so expendable and replaceable in the Roman Empire. As a matter of fact, um, it was it cost more to actually feed and care for a slave than to buy a new one. And so if a slave got sick or if his health was bad or whatever, he just couldn't do the work, it was just cheaper to just get rid of him, get a new slave. All right. But the, uh, the uh, compassion that the centurion has here is, is noteworthy with respect to especially the vocabulary that's used in describing his precious um, value and that he would have esteem in for this boy for his own sake as a person, not just simply as property or something worthwhile or what, you know, not just simply valuing it because, you know, you get something out of it, but valuing him intrinsically for the value he has. The uh, same word is used in the the great story of uh, Luke 14:8. That, that's the story where you don't want to you don't want to take a seat too close to the head of the table, right? Without being offered or being asked, because you'd be real embarrassed when somebody more precious than you comes in, more valuable than you comes in, and the master of the table says, "Oh, excuse me, why don't you go sit over there and make room for this person here because they're more precious to me, more valuable to me, more important, and you don't even deserve to be sitting here." Okay. That's the story in Luke 14.8. Philippians 2.29, in the context there, should have that memorized. I have so many Philippians Bible verses down. He's going to send uh, Epaphroditus here, who was sick to the point of death. So I've sent him all the more eagerly. And it says, Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him with entimas, with high regard, with esteem. And I don't think that a, a local church that's accustomed to being fed the word of God, I don't think that a local church would have a problem with that, with a, a, their, especially their pastor coming back, but any pastor. He says, hold men like him in high esteem. A pastor that's been faithful in the word of God, a pastor that's been uh, uh, through the battles and so forth. If they come in here... Uh, what a delight. What an opportunity. We're going to have one uh, in a couple of weeks to come in here on a Sunday morning. What a privilege to have, uh, you know, a different pastor come in and give us the word of God and encourage us. Uh, Philippians 2.29 says, hold men like him in with entimos, with high esteem. See, first Peter two, verse four and six, with reference to us, we are choice and precious in the sight of God. We are choice and entimos, precious in the sight of God. Casey's uh, sister and uh, Linty's roommate isn't here this morning, but I was going to have a lot of fun with entimos, given that it's translated as precious. You know, the neat thing about it is we live in this culture of, what do you want to call it? I mean, we're the, we're the 
psychoanalyzed, uh, self-help dependent, you know, wusses. I don't know what else to call. And, and spiritually speaking, too, when it comes right down to it, you know, people go to these mega church type things where they can fit in with the acceptance thing and, and I'm okay, you're okay is the is the philosophy behind the the uh, the, the seeker friendly thing. You don't even have to be saved to be a member of these churches. Just be here and be accepted and we love you and, and let's get along. And and all of this psychoanalyst that uh, analysis that takes place that says, well, you know, you're special and and all of this it, the, the tragic part is there's no need for the human uh, psychiatry or psychology behind it because the scripture itself describes how we are choice and precious in the sight of God. So if you have a doctrinal understanding of redemption, you can have the appropriate spiritual self-esteem and not be dependent upon people telling you that, uh, that you're okay. Because... You know, if, if you really were as, as hopeless and pathetic as you try to convince yourself in your self-depression pity party, why did God give his son to die for you? Really, when it comes right down to it. If you're truly that pathetic and worthless, then man. So in First Peter, we have this, chapter 2, verses 4 and 6. Of course, the son is choice and precious, and we also are choice and precious. It says, coming to him as to living as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Now that the singular stone obviously is Christ, rejected of men, but we come to him. You also as living stones. So keep in mind, we are patterned after him. He is choice and precious. We are choice and precious. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Not because we deserve it. Because he does. For this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, intimas. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, keep in mind, active verb, disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected became the very cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now consider yourself as a living stone, choice and precious in the sight of God. To the disbelievers, how are they going to relate to you? You're going to be just as hated, just as rejected, just as much a stumbling block and a rock of offense. All right, so keep in mind that verse, verse 7, I won't deal with it this morning, but there is a, uh, a doctrinal principle between belief and disbelief, an active verb, in rejecting the gospel message. All right, so he's a slave, but he's precious. Precious, not for selfish reasons, but precious intrinsically. In other words, the value of this boy, the... Uh, Centurion esteems the value of this boy. In Luke, we're told that he's sick and about to die. In Matthew, we're told that he's lying paralyzed at home and fearfully tormented. You don't have to write down all the Greek if you don't want to, but just jot down the two records under point C. He was sick and about to die. Fascinating idiom that the doctor uses. Luke uses kakos ekon, that is, having it bad. Having badly. Okay? 
And then we use the same phrase sometimes, you know, how are you feeling? Oh, I'm having it bad. You know, is that a medical diagnosis? Well, it must be. Dr. Luke used it. All right. I'm just having it bad. And about to expire. Uh, telos is finished or complete. About to be expired. In Matthew, though, when the centurion comes personally and speaks to the Lord, the language that he uses is pretty vivid. And I'm wondering how much of it is medical and how much of it the centurion is, is properly recognizing as being demonic, being a spiritual affliction more than just simply a physical health affliction. All right. And that's something that, you know, doctors have a hard time with. You know, they want to treat everything physiologically, they want to treat everything medically and chemically and pharmaceutically and everything else. But, you know, where is their, where is their manual for diagnosis in, in the spiritual realm? How do, you, how do you treat the demonic? How do you treat the intrusion of the spiritual realm into the physical body for uh, maladious effects? Which I think is what we have here. When he says... Um, He's been laid out in the house uh, from Balo to Castor to throw. It's a, it's a passive of Balo. He's been thrown down. He has been thrown down. He is uh, not just laying down. There's plenty of words for sit, lie, sleep, tons of those. But this is a perfect passive of having been thrown down. Balo, see. Like, I threw the pen. Okay, that's Balo. He has been thrown down, rather violent. When we see the demonism in, in the Gospels, we find that it's throwing the victims down, in some cases into fire and other dangerous uh, conditions. So having been cast down in the house, paralyzed, paralutikos, and then it says, um, fearfully tormented. And I did not put a study together on uh, basanizo or on basanas or basan uh, natos and there's a stem of words there but it's it literally means to torment or to torture if you think about we've often taught distinctions between dokimazo and peirazo where with peirazo we're being tempted for our downfall with dokimazo we're being examined for our approval uh, this would be a third one that goes with that. Uh, Basanizo uh, is, a, is a trial, it's a test, it's an examination, but what it is, it's a testing by torture. See, it is a testing by torture. Kind of like the old methodology they used for uh, uh, proving a witch in, uh, in Salem, for example. You know, the, the torturous methods and... and uh, <laughs> Some of them were rather insane. You know, if the person could live through it, it proved, I forget how it proved they were a witch. No, if they died, it proved they were a witch. And if they lived through it, they proved that they weren't. You know, God had protected them from the trial, from the torture. See, failing to recognize, you know, if you torture a person like that, their chances are they're going to die, whether they're a witch or not. All right. Well, torment or torture. And having been cast down, presently in a paralyzed state, and, and by the way, there are many passages in the Gospels, or several I should say, where the paralutikos condition of being paralyzed is in fact a demonic condition. It is a consequence of being uh, demonically uh, impaired. 
So it's not a stretch to view a demonic affliction here. The vocabulary is consistent with it. Fearfully tormented. This is the language that's used when, in fact, is it in this chapter? Is it in Matthew 8? Yeah. Matthew 8, verse 29. When the uh, very same chapter we're dealing with here, Jesus is uh, passing through the hill country, the, the Gadarenes here, and they come out and they say, uh, what business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Have you come here to basanizo us before the time? So this is what they were afraid of. They were afraid of the torment. They were afraid of being cast into, into uh, the region of Hades that's reserved for them, a place that itself is called torments. See, when Lazarus and the rich man die, Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom, the rich man goes to a place of torments, a place of basanas. Related form from what we see here. So the doctor gives us in Luke, we get this medical condition that he he had it bad. He was about to die, medically speaking. When the centurion comes to Christ, his phraseology, I find to be remarkable because it it recognizes, I think it recognizes a spiritual battle that has to be dealt with. See. In any event, he clearly had faith that Jesus was going to heal him, no matter how much understanding he had of what the affliction actually was. But I think he understood more than we sometimes give him credit for. Now, we'll have to come back to this. Let's see. We've got five minutes remaining. In Luke, we've got some amazing aspects here on worthiness. Under point D, relative perspectives on worthiness. Let me read through it one more time. Uh, I think when we read through Matthew and Luke, you were focused on the differences and, and spotting the, the differences in the account. Let's just limit ourselves now to Luke, and let's see if you can spot some issues here in worthiness. Relative perspectives on worthiness. centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his, of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy. He is worthy for you to grant this to him. For he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not consider myself worthy to come to you. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And it goes on and the rest of the story. We've, we've seen the issues on worthiness here. And it again, we're going to be dealing with a concept that's going to help us in this episode, but is actually going to help us beyond this episode, beyond the Gospels, to the New Testament at large. Um, when you stop to consider the way in which God operates and deals with you and I, is, is worthiness what we're striving for? Is, is worthiness the basis for answered prayer? Is worthiness the basis for salvation? Is worthiness the basis for uh, receiving anything in the plan of God. Okay? And this is where we can, we can draw it out. And like I say, this is just to wrap up this morning, and we'll come back to this next hour. But let me, uh, let me chart this for you, because 
the, the Jewish elders were all convinced of this man's worthiness, weren't they? He deserves it. He's earned it. That's the Jewish elder approach. And, of course, who are they? They're guys that have spent their whole lives trying to be worth it, trying to live up under the law, trying to be worthy. And they look at this Gentile and they call him worthy, which is noteworthy praise for any Gentile, let alone a centurion who's a part of the oppressive forces that are dominating their, their land. Okay, And by the way, he wasn't even a centurion in the regular army either. The, uh, the, the actual Roman army under the, the governor's command didn't have troops stationed at Capernaum. It was, uh, it was a, uh, an auxiliary century, an auxiliary cohort that was formed of uh, native Syrians and Greeks and so forth. And it was uh, in the service of, of Herod rather than in the service of, of uh, Pontius Pilate or Rome. All right. He's a Roman soldier, but he's serving in an auxiliary uh, cohort uh, working for on behalf of uh, on behalf of Herod. So any Jew would pretty much hate him for all of those reasons. But these elders say, no, he's worthy. All right. So let's start thinking about worthiness. The idea of worth is something that's equal to something. Right. You, you're going to buy something. You have to decide, well, what's it worth? Is it worth the uh, the price tag on whatever it is? See, and husbands and wives might look at that differently. <laughs> Husband says, "Man, yeah, that's worth a hundred dollars." The wife says, "Are you kidding? I wouldn't spend ten dollars on that." Okay, and it goes the other way too. But worthy is it equal to? Is it commensurate? Is it is it of value? And he is worthy for God's action. That's the view under a mindset of law. That you strive to be worthy in order to provoke God to some sort of action. So that you can earn or deserve something. We find out though that we don't earn and deserve anything. Right? Can't earn our salvation. Can't earn any divine favor. We can't impress God. These guys were all impressed because he built a synagogue. Did that impress God? God goes, oh man, you're right. I owe it to him. Yeah, he built a synagogue there in Capernaum. What would I have done without that guy to build a synagogue for? for my, okay, you're right. I, I owe him. Okay, I'll heal this slave. See, grace comes along, and you can chew on this this week, and it turns it around. Because, see, what happens is under grace, we understand that God has already taken action. On a grace basis. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. By grace you have been saved. God took action. He provided. It's not very bright, is it? Okay. should be brighter than that. God has already taken action. And because of that now, not in order to earn it, not in order to deserve it, not to pay God back for it, but in appreciation of it, we then want to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. Okay? Not to pay God back for it, but in appreciation of it. See? And that's one of the greatest distinctions between law and grace. Now, they're all convinced that this guy's worthy. He's going to show up with the truth. I'm not worthy. See? 
in an expression of, uh, of humility. So humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He will exalt you at the proper time. All of these are concepts and principles we're familiar with. We'll, uh, we'll resume this next week. No, two weeks from today. Lord willing, rapture pending. Next week is the Schaefer Theological Conference in Houston. Uh, so ladies can still meet for prayer at 9 o'clock, but I will be in Houston. Several uh, folks here will be in Houston uh, on that day. So we will resume this study two weeks from today. There will also be a Wednesday in April. If you want to plan ahead to April, April 12th is a Wednesday where I'll be in Spokane. So once again, uh, prayer is, is, is super, but there won't be a Bible class at 10 o'clock. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.